Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who was born in South Korea. She shot to fame at the age of 11 when she won the fifth Rostropovich International Cello Competition, but has now gone on to a very successful career as a conductor. After a spell as the music director of the Qatar Philharmonic, since 2017 she's been the chief conductor of the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra in Norway. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Hanna Chang. Hanna, it's incredibly nice to see you again. How are you? What a pleasure, Mike. I'm so happy and thrilled to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. It's not a problem at all. Um, I say meet again because we met when I was in Trondheim in October and you were, well, let's say you were stuck there, weren't you? Because, you know, you'd, in between bouts of conducting your orchestra in Trondheim, rather than fly back to the US and have two weeks quarantine and then fly back to blah, 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 blah you just stay there and you came to my concert. And it was lovely to meet. That's, yeah, absolutely correct. I wanted to avoid another 10-day quarantine um, yeah. by staying put in Trondheim. And uh, it was lovely to see you. You're a frequent guest of our orchestra, of Trondheim Symphony Orchestra, where the members really, really love working with you. And it was such an impressive program of film music that you conducted. I mean, I think I fell in love with that wonderful music all over again. It was magic in the air. Well, I mean, the the audiences seem to really, really enjoy it. And and I know the orchestra loves Absolutely. playing it. Well, every orchestra loves playing it. You know, from John Williams <laughs> to, you know, we did this beautiful little cue from Up, which was just a very small chamber orchestra sized thing. But everybody just seemed to love playing it. And yeah. Yeah. And that was so charming. And yeah. it was really a wonderful program. It had a nice connection and nice musical sort of logic and flow into it. I really loved it. Good. Um, yeah. And we're going to go, as you know, because I know you've listened to a few episodes, probably through being stuck in hotel rooms for a long time. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I know, uh, or you'll know that I always go right back to the beginning. And the beginning is South Korea. It's where you were born. Uh, and, yes. you know, I've read on Wikipedia and, you know, already before I pressed record, I discovered that something was wrong on Wikipedia. But it says that you started the piano at the age of three and the cello at the age of six. Were your mum yeah, and dad right. musicians? I mean, <laughs> was music a big thing? My dad loves music. Uh, he loves uh, Beach Boys, Beatles, you know, all the classic great pop music. So we had that going on. And then my mom is a classically trained composer. Oh, wow. And she used to compose all these really, really cool music for like string quartets and for piano and orchestra to something that sounds when Prokofiev is a little bit more avant-garde. Right. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. although she, she has stopped composing um, ever since I came along I think uh, <laughs> so I feel very guilty about that oh dear. but um, yeah so she was a composer and she was frequently giving lessons at home so we had a piano at home we had this pop thing going on with my dad and then classical music and uh, every day almost well yeah every day I came home from kindergarten I would put on the Pergint Suites huh. I absolutely adored that music um, that's the story and the other their favorite record was, of course, Pablo, because I was playing the box suite. Uh, we had the big LP yeah. um, at the time. And um, I just couldn't get over how personal it sounded. Yeah. I had no idea who Pablo Cazales was. Uh, Bach, yeah, that's just Bach is Bach, whoever that is. Yeah. But this music was really getting to my soul. And I'm an only child. So my parents decided that I would somehow study an instrument so that I can have a lifelong companion and friend. They never imagined that I would be a professional musician. Yeah. So I started on the piano banging away when I was three years old. And uh, I told my mom, I don't remember it clearly, but I have some memory of it. I told my mom, I, I don't like piano. It's too big for me. I can't reach the ends of the keyboard. My feet are just dangling. I can't, you know, press yeah. the pedal. That's the, that's what makes it sound so fun. So my mom, uh, got me a small cello, it was a quarter sized cello. And immediately my chemistry was so much better with this instrument because I could hug it. Yeah. I could carry it with me to school. I can show it off to my friends. And it just felt to me like a much more intimate way of creating sound. Mm. And then, you know, of course the box suites, yes. that was for this instrument. Yeah. So it was, um, it was so exciting. Uh, those, those first few days uh, learning to play the cello. Well, it obviously rubbed off. I mean, I think if my maths are correct, you were an extremely young winner of the fifth Rostropovich <laughs> International Cello Competition. Were you 12? 
I was 11. It was you were 11. My, okay. Well, well, it my was massive. before my 12th right. birthday. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to backtrack a little yeah, bit. Please because, do. Um, yeah, please yeah. do. I started getting my first cello lessons and I had a very, very strict teacher. Right. Like she literally had a ruler in her hand. And <gasps> if I held the bow somewhat in a wrong manner, she would... Yeah. <laughs> ouch there goes my uh... <laughs> so she was very strict but to a certain extent it was very good because you have to have good posture good form i mean you know this you're yes. you're a violinist yourself it's yes. so important to have the right positions but on the other hand when she moved away far away i was so happy to be liberated i stopped <laughs> getting lessons yeah. for about six months and then my mom found this wonderful conservatory student who was basically playing with yeah. me it wasn't learning and it was playing and it became fun again I and I became really serious about it when I to the state so vivid when I for the first time saw Jacqueline Dupre playing the Elgar Cello Concerto yeah yeah um that was life-changing experience because yeah. I think I experienced for the first time what an intimate and direct and powerful experience a performance is mm. what just the, the level of communication. I mean, what she was giving to me, what she was saying to me was just, I never experienced anything like that. And that was really the beginning of me taking, playing the cello very, very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so of course you want to play for the, for the great, great cellists that I always saw on the album covers and Slava was one of them, except he was too busy and he was, extremely famous of course i mean the greatest cellist alive and enormously busy and it was impossible to get through to any agents or managers or you know representatives is the yeah. great maestro and you're like how old are you nine ten <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. then then uh, we found this information about his competition he used to have an international cello competition every four years in yeah. paris and uh, he later told me that he had completely forgotten about setting the underage limits. It was huh. for anybody 33 years old and younger. Yes. Covered me definitely because I was uh, yeah. 11 at the time. So I applied and somehow they thought it was a typo that I was 11. They thought I was 21. So I passed the application, <laughs> um, went there played in the first round Slava later told me he had a heart. He almost had a heart attack because he thought the cello was walking up by itself because <laughs> <laughs> I was hiding behind the cello. Um, it, yeah, I went there to really meet him and play for him yeah. and um, winning the competition was really a bonus. Um, it changed my life. Absolutely. Yes. But um, yeah, I went to really play for him and yeah, it was great to meet him and he became one of my, most important mentors. Although, let me just mention very quickly, Misha Maisky is yes. my cello daddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Misha opened my eyes to music. I, I'm just so fortunate to have these great, um, yeah. great, great influences when I was so young. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back very briefly to the Elgar and to Jacqueline Dupre. Um, I wonder whether us musicians have, there are certain pieces that are inextricably linked to one person. The Elgar mm -hmm. is inextricably linked to Jacqueline Dupre. It's her piece. Yeah, it's yeah. her piece. And every cellist afterwards has to have a, make a decision about how she plays it compared to what's written on the page. Yeah. Same as conductors is that, you know, I, I can't imagine there's a professional conductor alive who has not watched Carlos Kleiber videos, right? And, and his name comes Tell up on this podcast. It. Yeah, it oh comes up God. every... Yeah. And you get to conduct Beethoven's Seven. For instance, I'm doing it, conducting it right at the moment with my with the Corinthian Chamber Orchestra in London, the concerts at the end of the week. There are certain yeah. moments you get to a corner and think, oh, God, you've just done exactly what Kleiber did in that video. You know, it, 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 it again, it's linked. You know, the Beethoven Four, Beethoven Seven, Rosen Cavalier, all of those things that we've all watched. Do you yeah. think, I mean, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. I mean, especially the old girl with Jacqueline Dupre. You have to make a decision at some point, don't you? You know, I, I suppose. Um, I can't think of a I violin equivalent. I don't think equivalent. it's a bad thing no. at no. all. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's a good thing in that you, if you just take a step back, for me, I mean, if I'm, if I, when I was a cellist and playing, playing uh, Elgar, or like you said, you know, if you're conducting Beethoven 4 or 7 or Beethoven 5 even, there's yes. stuff on the internet, fantastic stuff. You know, Brahms 2, Brahms 4, Mozart, yeah. Lentz. Uh, 
Coriolan overture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the way, doesn't, if, doesn't if that, I, by the way, doesn't that work? By the way, have you ever tried it? Oh yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. of course, <laughs> of course. And yeah, you know, yeah. if I just take a step back and think, wow, to get to that level of intimacy, to be so identifying and so believing in the music, and to have such such deep convictions that whoever yeah. watches it, Jackie's been dead how many years? And I was born yeah. in South Korea, so far away from England, and you know, completely different generation, different. And it touches me so. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a great source of inspiration, and it gives me so much courage that just dig into the music. Yes, just dig in, dig in, dig in, and try to find for myself what the composer is trying to tell me. Mm, mm. I think it for me, it's a great source of encouragement and and inspiration to have these strong associations because it shows me what's possible. Yeah. And of course, all, me too, when I do Beethoven 7. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, yeah, Carlos Kleiber. Yeah, yeah. I think I might try, try, try what he did because <laughs> the results he got. <laughs> exactly. Just, yeah. Some of yeah. it is, some of it is just so musical because yeah. I, I don't think it's choreography. Some people say it's beautifully choreographed, but as a conductor, you know, I know we don't choreograph anything because no. we're responding to what the orchestra needs in the a moment. Absolutely. And what, what we want in our vision, we want to marry the two, right? The mm. reality and the and what's what's in our hearts, and try to make 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 something become. Uh, so we're responding to what we're hearing, what who's in front of us at the moment, and maybe it works yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, to do, yeah. to pull a climber. And I I I I love him so much. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> but, uh, just for the the listener who maybe doesn't know this, but he. Uh, he wrote a letter to, um, I think his name's Charles Barber. He's a, 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 pro a professor of conducting in America. I've actually asked him to come on the podcast, and he said, no, That's just, awesome. re just read book? the book. Yeah, he's, he said, oh, just read yeah, the book. The you book don't is need fantastic. to come on. Yeah. Yeah. But Kleiber yeah. wrote this letter basically saying that he'd always struggled with the start of Coriolan. And then mm -hmm. he, he went to see Duke Ellington conduct a concert um, right. with his band. And Ellington walked out gave a cursory bow to the audience and then immediately just turned around and gave this slamming down downbeat and off they went. And he said it was yeah. the most electrifying start. So he said he went back and tried it with Coriolan and it, and it works. It absolutely it works. works. And, and I've done it with Egmont as well. And it's, and it does work yes, you know, yes, because what you, also, yes. by trying to prepare those, those big monolithic columns of unison C mm. or unison F by in any other way, the sound doesn't either start right or you get the depth when it doesn't, you know, but you just turn yeah. around and go whack. Uh, and it, you you get just it. have to jump in. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Just, you just okay. jump in. Yeah. We, got, we got very Kleiber geeky there, which is good. Um, let's see if he comes <laughs> up later. You obviously you mentioned Misha Maisky, but also Slava is such a big name because he was a conductor as well. Um, Absolutely. When did conducting really start for you becoming a thing that you were interested in? I mean, I'm interested. Was it anything to do with learning with Slava, um, or as it was, you got older and you were at Juilliard, and also I read you studied at Harvard at the same time, studied philosophy. But when I'm really interested to know when conducting first reared its its head I won't say ugly head but really its head <laughs> it's beautiful head yes. <laughs> um I I I think it was around the time that I turned 16 yeah. uh 15 16 you know the cello repertoire is very small and I was so fortunate to start my career as a cellist you know so young at the age of 11 12 but even then I found myself playing the same pieces over and over and over and over again sure yeah yeah um and because the repertoire is so limited and we don't have the luxury that the violinists or the pianists have um i found myself feeling a little bit like looking down the microscope every single day or just analyzing the same notes over and over again and i thought mm. but i want to discover galaxies i want to have a look at the sun and the moon and the stars i want to look at the telescope and for me the classical music's wonderful firmament the stars are really the symphonic music so mm. yes we i i had heard beethoven symphonies you know in my childhood growing up of course brahms and tchaikovsky wonderful but i should really study the scores because yes. that's that's the music of mm -hmm. course you have many many great recordings but 
the, the first source is always what the composer wrote mm. on the paper for you, for me. So I got myself um, Beethoven symphonies, Mahler symphonies, and Bruckner symphonies. Those three I was absolutely just obsessed with in my late teenage years. Thanks to another one of my mentors who I would like to mention just briefly here is Giuseppe Sinopoli. Mm. I was very lucky to meet him. My first concert with him was when I was 12 years old. And until his sudden death, I think we played over 30 concerts together. Oh, wow. And the other day, I was just looking through some of the old stuff. Um, and in the first half, I had this is the first time I met uh, Gustav Mahler. First half, I played the uh, Haydn Cello Concerto in Dresden. This yeah. is when I was 13. Second half, he did Das Lied von der Erde. And I, even today, I still remember so well the second half. I was sitting in the in the royal balcony mm. in that gorgeous, gorgeous theater. This heavy, heavy in my head. Just, yeah. It was just so beautiful. And here was this great maestro whom I loved dearly, is the warmest mentor ever. And this music and this beautiful, you know, um, alto just singing on, 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 on. And I cannot forget it. And that's where I really fell in love with Mahler. Yeah. Mm. So I started studying these scores. And then, you know, you say to yourself, I've got to conduct this. Mm. Mm. Let's find a conducting teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so that led to my first uh, conducting lesson with uh, James D. Priest, mm. whom I had played with, I knew. But at that time, he was the chair of the conducting department at Juilliard. So it was very easy to write, dear Meister de Priest, uh, I'd like to conduct. And he said, okay, come, you're mm. not the first one. What would yeah. you like to conduct? And I said, Beethoven 7. And he said, <laughs> why is it that everybody wants to start with Beethoven 7? <laughs> I don't know, it's great music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, have, you'll know, having listened to episodes, that I always ask with a teacher whose name I've not, I'm pretty sure we've not discussed James de Priest on the podcast, about a t as, as being a teacher, what mm. sort of style was he? Was he um, a stick-based guy? Was he a score-based guy? Or was he the whole overall package? Well, how did he focus in the lessons? I think with me, he focused a lot on, on the whole thing, I would like to say, oh. but even more specifically on how the baton was conveying the weight of the sound, yes. how clear it was. And he was all about economy. Mm. And, you know, if you're conducting for the first time, that's, that's the farthest thing, or at least <laughs> yeah. it was the farthest thing from my, my economy. I yeah. love this music. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so I mean, like, I brought the Korean to him uh, together with Beethoven Seventh. Uh, it was my one of the first works that we worked on together. And this, this downbeat of Korean and the weight. Yes. You've got to show the weight. Mm. It just how heavy is it? Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, he would also, we talked about the weight of Beethoven and the weight of Mahler. Mm. But then again, you've got to conduct Mahler in order to find out for yourself. I mm. find that, you know, here in Trondheim, we've been going through Mahler symphonies uh, since I started my uh, tenure here in 17. And apart from the third and the eighth, we've done everything together. Yeah. All the Mahler symphonies, or we will have yes. when we get to Das Lied von der Erde next, next season. The third symphony, Mahler three, we're doing next season. So then it becomes quite clear to me now, having done almost all of Mahler, what James De Priest, Maestro De Priest, was saying about the weight mm. of the baton in Beethoven and in Stravinsky. And I think that also has to do with the relationship you have with the orchestra. If it's mm. your own orchestra, like you know, Mike, and you have this relationship not just through one or two programs, but throughout the, the whole literature, then this becomes something that you can really work on with yes. the orchestra. If you're visiting for the first time or you don't know each other that well and you find that they're not quite responding the way you expect to, then this becomes a different question of weight because mm. what they need, you and I will know within the first 10 minutes is, is something, maybe something completely we didn't expect yeah. and we need to adapt to get the results we want. So... That was a very interesting discussion. I still remember to this day is the weight of the baton, the clarity, the economy of gestures. And um, yeah, he also uh, had me sometimes conduct without the baton and he loved it. He mm. thought, is it because you're an instrumentalist that your hands are so expressive? 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like you feel that somehow Absolutely. your hands are, I, I feel like compared to my dad, who never played a musical instrument, I always say this to tease my dad, but, oh, dad, that's because you didn't play an instrument. We have these connections with our fingers, you know, when you're well warmed up and you're in good shape, that's one feeling. When yes. you've not been practicing for a week, you feel totally like, I, I felt like concrete in my hands if I had them practiced every day. So maybe it's that connection. But that was also very interesting. He was such a kind man. Yeah, he was He was really a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Yes. I mean, what the listener can't see is whenever you said the word wait and you used it about 12 times in the in that last passage of chatting, but you were doing a sort of downward gesture. And, you know, I've met yeah. you and you're, you know, we're, uh, there's a big height difference between the two of us. But, that <laughs> yes. way, you know, uh, but you, what came across on the picture was there, there, you know, what you were doing was a weighty, heavy, but it was a small gesture. And, it, and it's learning to convey that without going to, as you said, when we first start conducting, we're, uh, this phrase I use, and I still conduct like this now when I get carried away, is I, I look like a speared octopus. You know, uh, I've been I've been sort of speared, speared to the ground. And there's eight legs I'm going to court you. Yeah, that's right. But, um, but that's what it feels like sometimes, is all of these uncontrolled mm. limbs going in different directions. But mm. you need to learn to be able to bottle it and come up with something that is heavy. Absolutely. And Absolutely. also what you say is so right in... And this has come up on the podcast before. When you go and guess somewhere, you put that yeah, damn beat yeah. down, and you have no idea when it's going to come back, how it's going to come back, how it's going to come yeah. back, but then, what is going to yeah, come back, what's going to come back. But then the second time, so you know, as you've said, I've been to your lovely orchestra now, I think three times in total. You know, yeah. the, when I came back for the second time, when you saw me conduct the concert, already I knew what was going to come back and how it was going to come back, and from there you then right. go on again. You know, and that—that's exactly. the wonderful exactly. thing about forming relationships. But yeah, to be able yeah. to to squeeze heaviness into a small gesture is a real art and a real trick, and it's something that Absolutely. we all need to learn to do. And yeah. I, I have a, also yeah. have a theory about us. I think I'm assuming yes, you do. I've seen videos of you, you conduct right-handed. I think as yes. string players who've been used to using the wrist and the fingers with the with the bow, I think when we come to hold a baton in our hand, we have an extra sort of... I remember early on a pianist saying to me, oh, it's so obvious you're a professional string player. The, how okay. fluid your, your beat is, <laughs> yes. how your fingers yes. move. You know, yes. And when I put the baton down for a slow movement, I think it helps that, you know, my hands can do things Absolutely. that string players do. You know, I think it helps. Yeah, I agree totally, because you, you have this... Somehow you have this connection... Yeah. yeah, with your hand, with the tips of your fingers, you know, with your vibrato and all, all of it. And yeah, I think it's so important, not yeah. just because I'm a string player, but so important for conductors to have this connection with a string instrument. I think yes. it's invaluable. Yes. Yes. Now, and just go, to go back to this, what you were yeah. saying about the weight in the, in the in the small gesture, sorry, but the late Karian recordings. Yes. And he was, mm. that to me is absolute masterpiece of, such small gestures what yes. he was doing yeah Bruckner with but, the wet, wet but, heft and yes weight. yeah exactly. yes yeah. and and barely doing anything and ah, yeah it's wonderful yeah. yes <laughs> Well, I'm going to stick to string playing in the because I'm going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to. I honestly don't. Yeah, you know, I stopped playing as a professional in July 2014 and have barely touched a violin since. I mean, you know, on a handful of occasions. I don't know when you decided to pull back from being a cello soloist. Whether you still do make appearances as a cello soloist, where is the cello now in your life? How does it figure? What's happening with the cello? Oh, my cello who it's always a who it's a he mm. who i love dearly it's is uh at home yeah and it has a nickname sleeping beauty or right. sleeping bow yeah <laughs> i think i i stopped giving public concerts around the same time you did actually i think okay. it was uh yeah 2013 or 2014 um there was there were a couple of I think one was in San Carlo, Napoli, and the other one was in Singapore where I did play directing. So first half Haydn, play directing, second half something like Prokofiev 5. And then I stopped. Um, Not only because is it difficult to keep both or be a top, top, top level string player and be a serious conductor, not only because it's it's difficult to travel with a cello, Mm. (laughs) 
just for the sake of of practicing you don't you don't drag away drag your precious cello and buy an extra ticket on the plane and leave yeah. it in the hotel room all by itself all day while you're rehearsing the orchestra it's just not secure yeah. or i i feel like it's not secure so but i really wanted to give myself a fair chance of becoming a serious conductor and as you know, Mike, this is a this is more than a full time job, or yeah. or it is for me because there's just so yeah. many notes to learn, and learning the so many notes really is only the beginning. I feel like, mm. you know, how how do you get to a a well, not only well thought out but well lived interpretation of Beethoven and Brahms? I mean, the great maestro Karian used to do Brahms Beethoven cycles every year yeah. in yeah. Berlin. I mean, that amount of experience versus the amount of experience one can get nowadays mm. as a young conductor conducting, you know, doing Beethoven cycles. Okay, so how many Beethoven cycles can you work into the first 10 years of your career as a serious conductor? Um, so I just felt like it deserved and I wanted to devote all of my time to this symphonic repertoire. So I walked away uh, of my own volition from from the solo career yeah let's talk about time um, and it's sort of the next question is sort of linked between the the time spent away from actually rehearsing and performing and uh, not yet score study. We're, we're not there yet, but it's to do with the other <laughs> the other roles that we have, um, especially mm. in the two jobs that you had uh, or you have and had. You, know, you, uh, yes. you spent a, a short time with the Qatar Philharmonic Orchestra as music director, yes. and you've been yes. principal guest. And then now, since 1718, you've been the chief conductor of the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra. Now, in my mind, you know, Trondheim is an established orchestra. It's been around a long time. Yes. You know, there's a concert hall right yeah. in the middle of the city. Um, mm -hmm. They sort of know their role in in cultural life of Norway, in cultural yep, life of Trondheim, yep. whatever else. Whereas yep. Qatar, I would imagine that was a pretty newish orchestra. They were trying yep. to forge bonds with audiences that weren't used to Western classical music. How did we? How was your your role away from the the actual music making? You know. Um, coming up with programs, coming up with ideas, touring, um, speaking to the managements about you, your role. I would imagine it was diff much different between Qatar and Trondheim. Um, yes, yes. Um, in Qatar, well, uh, my season was 15 weeks yeah. per season in Qatar. Right. And here now in Trondheim, I'm doing eight weeks yeah. plus touring or plus opera. Yes. Um, and in Qatar, my my interaction was mostly with the managing director of right. the orchestra, yeah. who with whom I would talk about everything. Yeah. So it was just pretty much one on one relationship. Whereas here, as you well know, there's uh, gate for production, Birgit for programming and all the yes. logistics with Charlotte and, yes. um, and then Tove does the marketing. So I find that here the dialogue is more horizontal and more yeah. lateral. And everybody has a well-defined, it's a well-oiled machine. And mm. sometimes I'm still amazed, you know, this is not my first season by far, but right. I'm still amazed that it's run so smoothly because if you look at some of the American orchestras, um, they have many more people on their staff yeah. and we're pretty much one person responsible for each area uh, for the orchestra to do what it does. And it works very well. Um, so, yeah, it's very different um, away from the away from the podium and away from the stage. But I see yes. my main role as being on on stage. I mean, all of the things that goes on behind the stage is yes. just preparation to get the orchestra on stage and mm. to create this fantastic artistic experience for our audiences. So but in it, a way, it's very different, but in a way, it's very same for me. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. I mean, it, it needs to be said that. You know, if if things are running very very smoothly off the mm. stage, it means you can concentrate mm. on being on stage. You know, I, all of those people that I've just spoken, you've just mentioned there in in yeah. Trondheim, I know, and yes. and and you know, hello if you're listening, dear Beer Beer, Get and Charlotte and and uh, Gare and all these people, you know. But the point is, you you can have a relationship with all of those. You can speak to them individually. That Absolutely. that. 
it means that you know things are done very quickly things are done yes. you know and and it means you can concentrate on doing your job as well as you can you're not worried well if I, i've said that to that one person is that being right. filtered down beneath them right you know do you know right, what i mean right. if you're only speaking yes. to one person um yes. then you've got to totally trust that person i suppose i mean you yes know, absolutely i've not been in that position whereas in Trondheim, everybody you know is easy to talk to I mean, the, the the best example I can give is that last time I was there, that Norway changed the regulations to do with COVID, which meant that we lost yeah. our last three concerts. In yeah, Trondheim. I heard about that. Yeah, and, yeah. And my wife was there and she was flying home that day on the Tuesday and mm -hmm. I was going to take her to the airport. But within mm -hmm. an hour and a half, I'd got a ticket on the same flights as her and I could go home with her because the, my concerts have been cancelled. It was done yeah. so quickly, so friendly, yes. in such a friendly way. Um, yes, and yeah, and yeah. it means music making is just so much easier because you're not fretting about anything else. You can just get out there and rehearse exactly, exactly. Your life, your life is easier this way, and I feel also yeah. that decisions are made faster. Yeah, and they can be more artistically oriented. Yes, if I go to Gay or if I go to Birgit or, for example, if I go to production or programming or artistic planning, and say because of this, because yeah. of Mahler or because of Beethoven, because of the program we're doing, this is what needs to happen. And if the, they understand, yeah. we just say, okay, let's do it like that. That's it. End of yeah. discussion. It happens. Yeah, it happens. Like you said, there is no waste of time. There is no waste of procedure, and we can just really focus on the music. And for this, I am. So grateful, and I feel very, very fortunate mm. that that this is the support system we have for TSO, for our musicians, for our orchestra, and that we can really focus on just giving our all at the rehearsals, and then and then some more at the concert. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the question that every single conductor has been asked—it's uh, the eleventh question, um, which yes. is about score preparation. When you come oh, to yes. learn a new score. Um, how do you go about it? What's your plan? Uh, big to small? Do you use a keyboard ever? Um, and are you a scribbler? For the geeks amongst us, are you a red, blue, black highlighter pens? Or do you not write anything in at all? <laughs> how do you not write anything? I don't know uh, about you, Mike, but I love... <laughs> I did, uh, we did a program of Mozart 40 and Dvorak 9 uh, two weeks ago, and yes. our stage manager, old Corey, he looked at, he looked at my Mozart and said, not so many drawings this yeah. time. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I love to draw. I love color pencils. You know, I use artist grade pencils. Um, yeah. For the graphite, I use a uh, 3B, 4B is my favorite. I love expensive pencils because the feeling, yeah. <laughs> you get such nice feeling when you write into the score because I love the feeling so much. I write more in my score. Yes. I love to highlight. Recently, I've been getting into highlighting. So green, purple, orange, yellow, whatever. It's my score. I'll do whatever I want to it. Exactly. The yeah. whole point is if it helps me get, get all the, all the goodies into my head, mm. I'll do whatever it's necessary to, to, to help myself absorb the music. Um, when I get a new score, completely new, so we're not talking about like uh, getting a new pocket score of Brahms score mm. that we've done many times, but just yeah. the contemporary music. I, I, I have, I still have a tendency of going by the baseline. Right. Yeah. Um, I try to get the big structures organized. If I see any pattern, I want to see how the composer is using or developing or repeating the patterns. And then I try to get a very clear idea of paragraphs, sentences, periods, commas, question marks, and everything else that he's throwing in between. Yeah, yeah. So what for me, the most helpful thing I can do for myself early on is to get the structure of the piece sorted out. Mm. And then the structure, of course, comes from harmonic progression, from motivic development, but all of this will, and then I go about, you know, sorting out instrumentation or, you know, uh, other uh, other variations of main main themes or, uh, quirks, you know, uh, why is he using a triangle this time and not the symbols like the past two times or blah, blah, blah. But if I have a very clear idea of the structure, I find that the piece just becomes mine so much faster. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I tend to do. I like yeah. your use of language about, you know, the story, then paragraphs, then yeah. sentences, yeah. then... Because you know, I often, I've often said, I used to say it when I taught the violin. Um, yes. It's no different now when I teach conducting. You know, if you're looking at a phrase yeah. of music, where would the author put the word love or death? 
you know, i.e., right. where, where is the top of the phrase? Where, you know, yes, and, exactly. And could you, can you stop obsessing about the words and of its the? You know, can we Thank head you. towards yes. love or death and then away from it or whatever yes. you know, it is? Yes, and exactly. I think, that, I think that's a really simple way of getting it across to our students. But it, it, you know, it's basically what we're doing. Orchestra, you know? Yeah, yeah. To everybody, because we were rehearsing, there was this passage uh, in the last movement of Mozart 40. And the cadence was, it, it was unresolved open cadence. And yeah. we kept making two bar diminendos at the end of the very dum, 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 dum. And I didn't like that. So I said, yeah, but did you have lunch? Or yeah. did you have lunch? Or right? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it, I had lunch. I had lunch? You know, yeah. it's, it all it has different connotations. And I, I really think it's the same thing in music. Yeah. And that's just the, the trick, you know, and I never had to ask for that phrase again because the, it just, so sometimes I think using such examples and such words just make things so much more easier to communicate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I shall never forget, um, it was part, it's, it, might, it will be still part of Andres Nelson's rehearsal ways. Mm. But you know, yeah. if, if a metaphor didn't strike home, then he would say, technically, I would like this. And then he'd just talk about a diminuendo or a phrase, you know, right. I'd like it to go from piano right. to pianissimo. But more often right. than not, the metaphor worked. But he always had a second chance because he said, well, yes. you, know, you could see it. Yes. You could see him think, well, the metaphor didn't work. Right. Technically, I'd like this, yes. you know, yes. which is the boring way yes. of saying, yes. the, you know, yes. in, in nuts yes. and bolts. But, you know, we I think we need many ways to to get across our point. And if you know that right. use, a use of language works with your, that orchestra, great. Or a yes. use of metaphor works with that orchestra. Great. You know, um, some right. orchestras, you know, I, I use a certain phrase all the time and it works. And then I've used it in another orchestra and it never works. And you think, OK, right. That's so I, true. Yeah, I need That's another so way. true. Yeah. yeah, because like um, I love to talk about, well, like, I mean, this is something that I really learned from Carlos Kleiber, but, you know, if you talk about the mood and it's just the colors that you can get, like waking up so early in the morning, you can hear the birds tripping and you're, you're in a strawberry field and you, you smell the fresh strawberries and, yeah. and already you have some sound. And yes. For example, our my orchestra here, Troname, as you know, they love this kind of things. Mm. And some orchestras, like you pointed out, yeah. why can't you just say pianissimo? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, everybody's different. So yeah, it's really interesting what 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 musicians react to. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've had exactly yeah. the same thing. I've used a metaphor, and somebody's just shouted out across the orchestra. So, so you want it louder? Then you know, you think, oh well, let's yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's let's slam the metaphor away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I had that experience too. It's like yeah. I was like, oh, it's like, where's my ten dollars? You know, pay me back. The yeah. Third trombone is like, you want it louder? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh well, <laughs> orchestras and, and the chemistry between a conductor and a, yeah, that's like we could get podcast after podcast about that. Exactly. Yeah. Are you fascinated by conductors and conducting? And would you like to learn a lot more about what we do and how we do it? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions, and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips, such as Trondheim. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read my articles on conducting and conductors and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Hannah Chang. Hannah, as somebody who's listened to a few episodes... You will know what's coming now. It is the all-important and unavoidable 10 questions. And so I will start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, I love the sound of nature, any sound, but especially summer evenings, I love that. Uh, I love rain. Mm. I love hearing rainfall. That's I really love it. The sound that I hate the most, and I can confidently say I hate, is the second-hand ticking on a clock. That bothers me so much. So whenever I'm I'm studying, I'm either taking batteries out of out of clocks or even my watches. 
I okay. love swatches, but do you know how loud they are? Yes. Yeah. So so every time I go shopping for watches, I'm I'm listening to the second hands because I don't I those really get to me. And you know, if you're probably like me too, but you don't want to 60 BPM all the time. Do you? No, no, no. Well so. it, as a watch collector, I think most of my watches uh, are automatics that go at sort of and so they're almost silent you have to put them right by your mm. ear but yeah I've got mm. some older ones that when I've worn them and, and uh, you know I've put them on the side you can either go tick tick you think oh I don't I, yeah you just don't want ah. 60 or 120 or 180 or you just don't want it in yeah. your life no it's true oh, I have one more thing that I hate um is yeah. I love my scores but the ones that are printed on glossy paper mm. like some of the pocket Sikorsky and I love Sikorsky but Oh, the glossy paper. I really don't like that. You get a glare from 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 reading those. Uh, yeah, please. Oh, nice matte paper. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to start listing things we hate rather than sounds we hate. But yeah, that's fine. That's, that's absolutely fine. Oh, yes. That was <laughs> no matter. <laughs> no matter. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Spend it definitely with my parents and we'll fly over to Seoul, South Korea to spend the day with my grandma, who's 94 years old now. Wow. Um, yeah, she's a sweetheart. And um, yeah, every minute with her is so precious now. I can't wait to make the trip back this summer to see her. And yeah, that's what that's what I do. Yeah. yeah. I've been to Seoul once many, many, many years yeah. ago. Um, mm. There's a poster on my wall, but there's no date on it. So I can't tell you when it was. The most yeah. enthusiastic, almost possibly the youngest sort of demographic of audience. I was there audience, doing three yeah. concerts with KBS Symphony Orchestra and Ian Bostrich, mm. the tenor, and we did lots of oh, Handel arias and then Vorjak's oh, New wow. World Symphony. And really enjoyed the, my time over there. Really, really liked it. And, but I thought the audience was, so happy uh, were just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, and they love music and they have yeah. thirst and hunger for it. Yeah, yes, absolutely. they do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, question number four. I wonder whether Carrie Ann or Kleiber or anybody else starting with K might appear. Can you name some <laughs> favorite conductors or just one conductor of yesteryear? I can't, I can't name one. I'm sorry, Mike. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, yes, I do love Carrie Ann. I do love Carlos Kleiber, Leonard Bernstein, Kurt Bangler, Guido Cantelli. Oh, I love Guido Cantelli so much. I'll stop right there. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, can tell you for the opera or just everything for the opera no just whatever i can get my hands on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever he did that's that's now available and in fact do we have a recording of his opera uh, i was just uh, thinking off the top of my head whether whether I, i've i've absolutely shot myself in the foot and thought whether he did any opera or not yeah um, i'm wondering that too because i'm regularly googling and amazoning and you know apple yeah. musicing and What's out there seems to be, although once in a while there are some rarities coming yeah, out. And, yeah. yeah. I possibly so mentioned opera because I realized that we didn't really talk about that with Trondheim and the fact that, you know, we, we hear yeah, of the Trondheim right. Symphony Orchestra, but each year you do a, a, a stage opera. Um, yes. And, and you've yes. got one coming up very soon. Uh, I mean, it's yes. one of the perks of that job, I would say, is the fact that you, you know, you can do the opera should you choose to. Um, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. wonderful. It's yeah. wonderful. We do a full stage production, one, and then we do a smaller production in the autumn. Uh, so technically yeah. two, but you're right to say one full really staged. Uh, we're doing Tosca this year and I'm just over the moon to do it. I, I love this opera so much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you can tell I love many things, but this opera I really love so much. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it all end up dead. I mean, the, the drama and the power and just the, 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 the tragedy of it. And yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, well, I'm very jealous. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Well, yes. you, you listed very quickly some names of conductors of yesteryear. I wonder whether you'll be just as quick with your favourite current <laughs> conductors. <laughs> Uh-oh. Although, <laughs> although mm. there is one that's just, I'm just absolutely loving everything he does, is Kirill Petrenko. Yes, I mean, yes. Mm. Isn't it amazing yeah. what he's doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every note from him is just dripping with sincerity and imagination. Yeah. I think I'm just, every time I something new pops up in digital concert, I'm like, <gasps> because yeah. yeah, it's really the imagination and, and the sound itself is, I find so amazing. Mm. Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah. I'm exactly the same. Whenever something pops up on the digital concert hall, I will quickly find two hours to sit down and watch it. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the repertoire he chooses is really yeah intriguing and really interesting. Like fully interesting, no? It is, but yeah. he's also not frightened to yes to do the 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 Berlin filled classics either. You know, to yeah, put his, exactly. his stamp on yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. it, when yes, when, yes. when they came across and did the proms before. The pandemic came, you know, they came and did Strauss mm -hmm. 10 poems and Beethoven 7. I mean, it couldn't be right. more more Berlin Phil if you more tried. More Berlin Phil. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But exactly. He, he, yeah. Yeah, as you said, he is doing some really different repertoire with them. Um, yes. And yeah. he seems to do everything wonderfully. Um, and, yeah. and technically a joy to watch as well. You know, I don't, never sit Absolutely. there with my very harsh yeah. teaching hat on going, oh, what did you do that for? <laughs> no, never, never. I sit there and think, oh, this is wonderful. So, yeah, brilliant choice. Yeah, and the joy that comes across. And mm. you can actually see when the music is painful, you can see how much he's in pain. Yeah, I love yeah. that, the sincerity. And there's just no hiding behind anything. Just And right. such a humble musician, mm. you know, really a humble approach, really trying to serve the composer. And yeah, that really moves me. So nothing, much. nothing seems to be for the camera's benefit at all. It's all for the player's benefit. And he's exactly. in the moment and doing it. And you know, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, my sort of conducting. Yeah, really, really. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Mine too. Yep. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Yes, that's a very difficult question, Mike. And um, <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, I think I find everything tremendously difficult, and also because your job, my job, our job is to make it easy for the musicians yes so i think i think it's difficult to find the solutions but once we find them it should no longer feel difficult it should only feel natural and clear mm. so well, everything i've done and nothing i've done yes. everything i've done and yeah. hopefully hopefully i have uh, solutions for the for the musicians by the time i meet them at the at the first rehearsal yeah well mm -hmm. you, but you also said something early on which i utterly and totally agree with but i'm sure some conductors you know do think about their moves before they conduct and stick rigidly to them but you, earlier on you said you know you're yeah. conduct you should never conduct it the same way twice because you're reacting to what comes out from the orchestra every exactly. time you conduct yes which means yes. that there are moments in pieces which technically you probably think are absolutely you know it's like riding a horse it's dead easy or riding yeah. a bike yeah. but then all of a yeah. sudden you have to do something to try yeah. and right a wrong or to try and stop the you know the wheels of the car slipping yes, because yes, you can yes, hear yes. it about to happen and yes, that's yes. when things become difficult because you've got to find that that gesture in an in a Absolutely. nanosecond there and then yeah. you can't you can't try Absolutely. four or five gestures because by the time you've done that Look, the car is skidded it's, it's gone yeah. it's gone yeah. Yeah. yeah i have that experience also because i used to have a festival in in south korea for mm. six summers it yeah. was called the absolute classic and it was every month, the whole month of August, we audition a new orchestra every year from uh -huh. musicians for the age of 22 until 32. Yeah. And they practically had uh, just graduated from conservatory or came back from abroad, came back to South Korea after studying in Germany or France or wherever, mm. America, and they had no orchestra experience and they had yet to find permanent jobs. So we did this for six summers and uh, we did all Tchaikovsky, you know, Brahms, Strauss, Mahler, Berlioz, Fantastic, Sacre du Pantin. Um, and it was really, really hard work mm. for them and for me because you're just basically learning the repertoire from scratch. Yeah. So like you described, many times there'd be moments when things were about to fall apart. And even with experienced orchestras, you know, in, in such passages you, uh, you mentioned. And then... You would try so hard to, I would try so hard to glue it back together. And then I, I, I saw this um, these, uh, documentary, they were interviewing members of the Berlin about Claudio Abado. Mm. Oh, Abado. How could I forget him? <laughs> Abado to your question. Oh, to earlier question, yes, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah and, and they would say, well, if something wasn't together, he'd just stop conducting. Mm. And the musicians would have to listen to each other. Mm. And there were maybe, as, as you well know, there are many instances in Korean recordings um, as well. You would think they're so polished and edited, but actually there are many passages when things are about to fall apart and then suddenly, miraculously, they all come together again. And yeah. I think that kind of 
shows and the in the experience of the conductor that sometimes the the most effective thing one can do is just to force them to listen to each other yes you know you can force them to watch your beat but if you're if they're actually forced to take a more proactive so activity more be proactive about playing together i think sometimes it's more effective and then trying to really really do that more um mm -hmm. is that they take the lead yeah. because yeah it has to come from them yeah well, i i've done this you know with amateur orchestras i've done it with youth orchestras and i know i've done it with professional orchestras as well when things start to wobble i'll stop conducting and i'll point at the person in the orchestra i think is the conductor you know, it could yeah, be a yeah, snare drum yeah. player, it could be the timpanist, it could be the horn section, it could be whatever. Right. You know, stop watching what you think to be my beat and start listening to the person who's actually yes. giving the rhythm. And and normally yes. things glue quickly. You know, I had a rehearsal yesterday yeah. with my amateur orchestra in London. I just stopped yeah. and pointed at the timpanist and all of a sudden within half a bar it was together. But yeah. rather than trying desperately with, you know, <laughs> by being speared to the ground as an octopus again with our legs flaming and everything, <laughs> just to lie still. Lie still and, yes. and just point to the person that, that they should be listening to, and it'll it'll fix absolutely itself. Absolutely yeah. right. Yes. But, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, and you know, I think you're the first person not to give a specific piece, but to say that conducting every, <laughs> everything that we conduct is difficult, and even if we've sorted out our gestures, there are times when you can't use those gestures because you have to be fixing something in the orchestra. You know, you're constantly yes, exactly. living on a knife edge of of how to react and how to respond, and I think that's a perfectly valid and yes. good answer. So. And you know, you know my orchestra so well, but we're now with me and my orchestra, we're at a time where we're starting to have the luxury of repeating repertoire mm. whilst doing still new things together. So when we come back to Brahms, for example, and we try to do it regularly and um, I've uh, programmed a Beethoven cycle next season. So we were, we have played some Beethoven symphonies together, but you know, mm. then we really try to find the Brahms sound and this is so difficult mm. because unless you've been doing it every season you know regularly this is something that we have to really think about and mm. and really find mm. and this for me sometimes is, is is as as difficult or even more difficult than actually the active active conducting and the technical aspect is to find find a palette Yes, and that's that's a really real joy to 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 be able to work on these things now. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, here, yeah. Question seven, and as we know, you travel abroad a lot, so let's find out your answer. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My pillow. Ah, you're a pillow. I person. travel with my pillow. Yes, um, yeah. shoulders, neck. I'm just a happier person if I sleep on my pillow. So. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere I go, it, it takes up like half of my suitcase. I don't care. I'll just bring another suitcase. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I have to say, uh, I know that we use the same hotel in Trondheim. The first yes. night I was there at Christmas doing the snowman, I had the worst night's sleep because I'd forgotten uh -oh. my pillow regime in that hotel. <laughs> By the second night, I realized I needed two of one specific shape and one of another specific shape, and I was then fine. Right, right. But yeah, if you get it wrong, yeah. I mean, yeah, sleep is so important, isn't it? So um Absolutely. yeah you're not the last or first or last to say a pillow and oh, uh, that's good <laughs> yeah i think it's very important yeah. Yeah. number eight what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor nothing nothing oops did i just make a mistake no I, not I at all i can't think of anything no. i would i would change um i don't know yeah. yeah what what were some of the crazy answers you had in the past oh i, I some people have talked about uh dress um concert oh. dress some people have talked yeah. about the relationship between conductors and players that why does it have uh. to be so standoffish at times some people have talked uh. about management um yeah. whether you need management <laughs> or what you know what you should expect from your management uh, there have yeah. been all sorts of different answers uh, yeah. i've had a couple yeah. of people who said no they really love it and that's the reason why they started it and it's turned out to be exactly what they wanted mm, i mean it's it's so much, it's such a hard, it's so difficult. I never imagined when I started as a conductor, you know, coming from a cellist, I never imagined it. It was this difficult a job, yeah. um, this, this much that it would just totally engulf my life uh, mm. to the extent that I, I don't have the luxury of thinking about anything else. No. I mean, just from purely musical 
perspective, what we what we're we're supposed to do, supposed to do on stage as conductors, just from purely musical perspective, and um, but it's great music. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think it's worth it. And, yeah, you know, and everything else, of course, I yeah, but no, I, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I mean, I I think what's what's interesting is. Uh, in your particular case, you know, I mean, I'm thinking now as a as an ex orchestral musician. Mm, the thing that mm. frightened me swapping over was I didn't really know what went on backstage, i.e., yeah. with chief executives, with managers, with agents, with all of that sort of stuff. Right. That that part yeah. of our world had passed me by. I was I was an yeah. orchestra player, so mm. all of that was new and fresh to me. But you'd been experiencing mm. all of that since the age of twelve, so none of right. that was a shock right. to you so at maybe, all. Right. So maybe yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. So, exactly. so that that yeah. you'd grown up with, whereas. For me, that was the that was the weird and wonderful new world I had to that, get used yeah, to. Yeah, sure, you know? sure, um, sure. Yeah. Where you know, where I, I suppose if the boot was on the other foot, you know, and in, and you came and sat in the cello section for six months, you'd realise oh, that the world was a different different <laughs> yeah. world. But yeah, exactly, yeah, it's a yeah. different world. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, seeing as you've had two professions, i.e., a solo cellist and conductor, I wonder what a, your choice, uh, a third choice, would be. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? heart surgeon it was always a fantasy of my childhood dream i always thought i was going to be a heart surgeon yeah uh, <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> and what and what were your sciences like growing up oh horrible <laughs> okay fair enough yeah horrible i think i love i think i love the tension yes i think i love nervous is not the right word for it maybe you have a better word but but this the state where you're so focused yeah. that you're actually comfortable, mm. that everything is just so has to be, and then you actually feel free. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, maybe as an instrumentalist, if you know you're so well prepared, you you feel so good and so free and just so happy and you know, this I I really like that. I I like that kind of um, yeah. Well, so. to, to use a sporting term, which I hate, but actually I've been in that place. Yes. twice as a as a cricketer in the yeah. zone you know to be in the in zone the zone. yes yeah you know where where, zone, exactly. where you're so you're so concentrated on the situation that you're in that actually you become yes. free i've had it twice as a batsman in my entire life um Wonderful. where yeah. but, but to be in that place you know it, it is and you're always searching to get back there um right and Every i think I, I think we're like that as conductors we're like that as musicians yes. as soloists when you're in that place where nothing else can affect you you're incredibly well prepared and yes. it's all going you know how it how you yeah. see it you know and then yeah, yeah. And I think also about being a heart surgeon is that whilst you personally, in your own mind, have to be in that place, you can only be a successful heart surgeon if you're surrounded by other doctors, nurses who Absolutely. are doing their jobs That's in the, exactly the same way. Yes. So, yeah, yes. it's not a surprising choice yeah. at all. So there we go. No, okay, that's so. good. I'm not a weirdo. <laughs> no, you're not a weirdo. No, definitely okay, not. <laughs> and the final question. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Actually, if if really the world were to end tonight, I think I'd be too frightened <laughs> to eat anything. Well, but, let's imagine um, you. Yeah, I'm, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, since I'm I'm in Trondheim now, um, I definitely have uh, this Norwegian apple mist. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Norwegian apple cider, although it's not really cider, it's the most decadent and luxurious apple juice and not sweet, a little bit tart. It's yeah. it's wonderful. Next time you're here, we'll treat you to it. Um, yes, I'll have please the do. Yeah. Yes, and um, well, Norwegian codfish, I guess, yeah. which is so excellent here. A nice, humble Norwegian meal. Um, but um, yeah, I, I probably, in to be serious, I think I'll have the, the Holy Communion as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. To be with the same as Manfred Holly. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> talking uh, talking of codfish, as you were, you couldn't be in a better place. I mean, really, you the, the food there is, you know, is is really really good. You get local fresh fish there. It's wonderful. Um, the fish as, is really excellent. Yeah. Yeah. As it's been wonderful, it's been for the last hour or so, Hannah. Um, I knew it would be after we met backstage in Trondheim and you know, we talked about you coming on the podcast. I knew it would be a wonderful hour. And so thank you. And I hope very soon that we meet somewhere again and carry on chatting and 
maybe if it's in Tron time, we can have some of that apple cider. That sounds lovely. Yes, we'll do that together. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me. This was so much fun. What a pleasure to chat with another conductor. It is, it's isn't just it? It's so yeah. easy to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next week is a very special episode as the podcast reaches episode 100. I usually, at this point, give you some idea as to who will be appearing next week, but all I will say is that my guest is English and that he has received a knighthood from the Queen. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>